Our Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Because it reveals things that we would never in our own minds, in our own ability. It it informs us of things that we would never, ever know without Your revelation. And so as we set our minds upon Your Word today, we ask that Your Word would not only penetrate our minds, but that it would penetrate our hearts. And that we would be transformed just a little bit more in the likeness of Christ during this time. Give us a deeper understanding of You and of Your Word. And give us wisdom, divine wisdom, that would guide and direct our lives to glorifying Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 to 24 today. Um, I wanted to get the whole chapter down, but there's just so much in this passage, as I always say, right? I don't know how many times I have to say that. But we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 to 24 today. You know, I think people may get the impression when they listen to me preach that I'm just kind of a a very serious person all the time. Uh, They may not uh, see or understand that I absolutely love humor, that that I'm actually kind of goofy when I'm not behind a pulpit. Um, But the use of humor in the Bible is actually one of my favorite things about the Bible. One of the things I I love so much about it. You know, Jesus often used humor. I think that's why he called James and John the sons of thunder, because they just wanted to bring down wrath on people, kind of like Jonah, right? Uh, But the idea also of, you know, trying to remove a splinter from somebody's eye while you have a, a beam of wood stuck in your own eye, that's another time that Jesus uses exaggeration, but it's actually fairly humorous if you get the, if you get the picture that he's giving us with that illustration. But there are plenty of comical stories in the Old Testament as well. Maybe more comical stories in the Old Testament. There's a story in the book of Esther in which the antagonist, or the villain of the story, a guy named Haman, is asked by the king, he's asked, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? That's in Esther chapter 6, verse 6. And then immediately we, we, we read Haman's thoughts. The, the text tells us, and Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And so Haman conjures up the most extraordinary, most extravagant blessings and, and, and ways of honoring somebody that you could possibly imagine, or at least that he could possibly imagine. And so we read uh, his response to the king in the verses that follow, verses 7 to 9 of Esther chapter 6. It says, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Now, of course, he says all this with the expectation that this is what he's going to receive. He thinks the king is talking about him. And so the punchline then comes in verse 10 where we read, Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> and the hilarious thing is that Haman absolutely despises Mordecai. So today as we, as we continue in our study of Genesis, we're going to see Pharaoh extravagantly bless the family of Jacob, the family of of Joseph. And given the chance to do so, it's hard to imagine that he would offer something more extravagant than the king in Esther, but I'd say it's close. It's close. We saw last week how Joseph freely forgave his brothers. We remember what his brothers did to him. They sold him into slavery about 22 years earlier, and he finally 
reveals himself to them. He's forgiven them. He forgave them a long time ago. But he first put them through, before revealing himself, he put them through this very rigorous, very calculated set of tests and and trials. And we saw that Joseph was able to be forgiving toward them, to forgive them freely because he had the right perspective of God's sovereign and good providence unto his people. And it was one of the most powerful moments of human reconciliation in the entire Bible. But ultimately, we understand, as Joseph understood, that really it was God behind all the events that led up to this point. It was God who had sent Joseph down to Egypt. It was God who had done it all. And it was God's way of saving His people. Joseph understood that God is the one who blesses us in His good and sovereign providence with all things that are necessary for body and soul. That's what we saw in the Heidelberg Catechism last week. And that includes the fact that God provides us with everything necessary for for, uh, body and soul includes the fact that God has given us what we need in order to forgive others freely. So our passage is going to pick up in the aftermath of Joseph revealing his identity to his brothers, finally being reconciled to them. Not that he was holding on to animosity, but that they didn't realize that they were already forgiven and they were reconciled freely. So he's instructed them to return to Canaan to get Jacob, to get their father, their mutual father, and to bring him back to Egypt with them where they can dwell near him, where they can be blessed by him in the region of Goshen. We saw that that was a a very fertile region. It still is today. Our passage today then comes from Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 to 24. And the point of this passage is is that it's going to show us that God doesn't just provide the bare minimum for us, but that His providence unto His children is abundant. It's abundant. So let's start with verses 16 to 20. We read, Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." You'll remember that when Joseph did reveal himself to his brothers, it was preceded by Joseph wailing so loud that everybody in the nearby vicinity could hear Joseph weeping and wailing. But they apparently quickly find out what it was all about. It's because Joseph's brothers have come and they've been reconciled. But this is one of the most thought-provoking passages in in all of the book of Genesis, for for me at least. Because when we think of Pharaoh, we often think of the Pharaohs in light of the Pharaoh that we find in Exodus, who was a very harsh man, a very cruel man, a very jealous man, a very worldly man. But this Pharaoh, this Pharaoh whom Joseph served under, was such a gracious, gentle man. He was was totally unlike his successor who would enslave the descendants of Jacob's household, enslave the Hebrew people. He would view them as a threat. He'd view them as kind of a a hindrance to Egyptian progress. This Pharaoh, this Pharaoh who loves Joseph so much, wants to liberate Jacob's household. He wants to bless them. He wants to secure not only their their well-being, but he wants to secure their future prosperity. Now, we might have expected that the type of animosity that we see in the Pharaoh in 
the book of Exodus, the one who's so cruel, because we remember what we already read back in Genesis chapter 43, verse, uh, verse 32, about how Joseph, when he had his brothers dine with him uh, for a royal feast, the Egyptians who were present in the room refused to sit with his brothers because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. So we understand that there's racism going on here. There's already a sense of of tribal hostility between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. So we would probably never have expected to see Pharaoh responding so kindly to the brothers of Joseph. In fact, he's more than kind, isn't he? He goes above and beyond kindness here. So if the question is, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? If that question were posed to Pharaoh, this passage gives us the answer because Pharaoh wants to honor Joseph. He blesses them. He blesses Joseph's brothers, and he does so abundantly. He he completely defies any expectation or social norm. Look at what the text tells us. First, we see that the news spreads quickly. It reaches Pharaoh's household that, that Joseph is reconciled to his brothers. Now, one might fear that it would make them feel threatened to know that Joseph's brothers have infiltrated the land, as if there's a possibility that they will kidnap Joseph or somehow they would lose Joseph. Maybe he'd want to go home with them. But what we see is that Pharaoh is pleased at the news that his brothers have come, that Joseph's brothers have come, as are all of Pharaoh's servants. They're all pleased to hear the news. They don't feel threatened. Pharaoh then comes to Joseph and he reiterates the provisions that Joseph has offered for his family. He basically says, load up your animals for carrying grain back to Canaan and come back with your father and you can have the best of the land. You can have the best food that the land has to offer here. When he says that they can have the fat of the land, what he means is that Joseph's family will have the very best that the land has to offer. And that's exactly what Goshen was. Apparently, even during this famine, though certainly to a a lesser extent than it would normally be during a a normal season. But then Pharaoh goes above and beyond. He, he, He does what would be completely unexpected. He gives them an even more generous offer than Joseph did than Joseph was was at least able to. Joseph had offered probably all that he was able to offer them. But Pharaoh, being equally generous as Joseph, is able to offer even more. He's able to give and, 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 and bless with even more than Joseph is able to. He blesses them in a greater capacity than anybody could possibly imagine. And why does Pharaoh do this? Why does he extend such incredible generosity toward these brothers of Joseph? It's because he loves Joseph. And he wants to honor Joseph. Joseph wanted his family nearby so that he could bless them, right? So that he could take care of them, so that he could provide for them. Pharaoh loves Joseph so much that he wants the exact same thing for the sake of blessing Joseph. He's more than happy to go along with Joseph's plan for them to establish themselves in Goshen. One commentator says this, he notes, quote, For centuries, the Nile had been depositing rich topsoil in the Delta region where even today, a rich profusion of grain, fruits, vegetables, and other edibles flourishes. It may have been a time of famine, but here, if anywhere, a family as large as Joseph's could survive. After the drought, it would become a paradise, end quote. So this was an incredible gift. You would have thought that he would have reserved the best for his own family, that Pharaoh would have reserved the best for his own family, but he says, no, I want to give it to Joseph's family because he loves Joseph and he wants to honor and bless Joseph. And so in verse 19, Pharaoh starts laying out the plans. They're to load up and take wagons or carts, depending on your translation, back to Canaan. And they're to load all their wives and all their children and Jacob onto the wagons and bring them back to Egypt. Pharaoh understood how difficult of a journey it would be, especially with somebody who, remember, Jacob had his hip thrown out of place. He's crippled. 
But here he's being given a means of getting there much easier than it would have been for him to actually walk down there. And the children, I mean, can you imagine taking a three-week walk with your kids down to Egypt? Yeah, it's going to be a lot faster if you've got wagons. And they're supposed to come back to Egypt. Go back, load everything up, and come back. Now, I realize that this might sound a little bit weird to us because it may not seem incredibly generous to see him offering wagons. I don't know about you, but I mean, what do you think about when you think of somebody hauling around a cart or or a wagon? Uh, I I personally think that we are inclined to perceive this in in our uh, 21st century Western mindset as a symbol of, uh, of poverty. I mean, we see people in impoverished countries today using carts and, and wagons. Um, but if we're going to understand this correctly, one of the things that we have to do is we have to try to do away with our, our current preconceived notions from, from our culture and to try to see this, to try to understand this the same way that they would have understood it in their time. See, in the ancient world, at this time, virtually nobody had carts or wagons. Technology just wasn't there to come up with smooth wheels that were perfectly sized with one another. So think about it. How did the brothers bring their, their, their grain back to Canaan with them on the first trip? This is how it usually worked. They would load up their, their donkeys and their, and their horses with grain, and then they would walk alongside the horse. Why? Because they're, they're trying to get as much as they can, and so they just loaded on top of the horse. That's the way it usually worked. They didn't have carts. They didn't have wagons. It was just a, a recent development in that age. And Egypt was the only nation on earth. They were the first nation on earth to perfect the science of making round and symmetrical wheels for carts and wagons. And so thus, carts or wagons were actually a very incredible sign of wealth. In the same way that today, you know, if somebody were to come in here and say, I'm giving every one of you guys a self-driving car, you have any idea how much those things cost? I mean, you can, you can buy a house cheaper than you can buy those cars, right? Maybe not here, but in your average place. But it's a sign of, of wealth if you have a self-driving car. Now, in 50 years, that's probably going to change. It's probably going to be, become more common. But today, while the technology is new, we understand it's a sign of wealth. So again, why such incredible generosity to the brothers from Pharaoh? Because he loves and wants to bless Joseph. This is how Pharaoh would bless the man whom the king desires to honor. And one of the things that we should see here is that Pharaoh apparently has no idea what the history between Joseph and his brothers is. Notice he doesn't come in and say, are these the guys that did that to you? He doesn't say anything. This is a fairly certain indication that Joseph had forgiven his brothers long before they had ever come to Egypt. Because there seems to be an indication here that Joseph never even mentioned, much less ranted against or complained about what his brothers had done to him so long ago. You know, we were talking about forgiveness last week. One of the ways to to know if you have forgiven someone is to see whether or not you are rehashing the offenses, either in your mind or especially with others. Because first we're prone to start rehashing the offenses in our own minds, right? And to start getting worked up and and angry about things that have been done to us in in our own minds. And then we start rehashing our offenses with others. But we don't do that if we forgive, do we? We don't do that if we forgive. We may conjure up the memory of something that's been done against us, some sin that we have suffered uh, from time to time, but when we do, if we have forgiven, we just let it go. We have to let it go if we truly forgive those who have sinned against us. So what do you do when it keeps coming up in your mind? What do you do when you suffer some horrible sin that somebody has committed against you, the nasty ones that you struggle to forgive. Maybe it takes you years. Maybe it takes you years. What do you do when that memory keeps coming up again and again and again? Every time it comes up, 
you intentionally resolve to forgive. You forgive all over again. And tomorrow, if you still feel hurt again, you forgive again. And if next year you still find that that particular sin that somebody has committed against you keeps serving like a a burr in your saddle, so to speak, you continue to forgive again and again and again the same way that the Lord has forgiven you and the same way that you want the Lord to forgive you. So Joseph, there's every indication here that he had completely forgiven his brothers long before they stepped foot in Egypt. He hasn't forgotten about what happened. Let's be clear about that. He hasn't forgotten, but he forgave them. And how? How did he forgive them? Remember what we covered last week? By keeping a right perspective of God's sovereign and good providence unto his own. If you believe, this is very important, if you believe that God is really causing every circumstance in your life to work for good, and His Word promises us that He is, if you really believe that, how can you possibly hold a grudge against someone? Or how can you be bitter about a certain circumstance? You can't. You can't. Because you remember that God is using whatever's going on in your life to grow you in Christ's likeness, to bless you abundantly, even the hard times, even the hard times. And so Pharaoh sends the brothers home to retrieve their families and their father. But before they go, uh, Joseph has another interaction with them where, where he blesses them again too. Let's look at verses 21 to 24. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his, to his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. So Joseph gives them everything that Pharaoh had instructed. He gives them these carts or, or, or these wagons. He gives them everything that they will need for both ways on the journey. But he also gives each of the brothers three changes of garments. But we're told specifically that Benjamin, remember, Benjamin is uh, the other son that Rachel bore. So he, he's the other full son of, uh, of Jacob and Rachel. Joseph is the only full brother that Benjamin has, and Benjamin is the only full brother that Joseph has. Benjamin is given more. He's given five changes of garments and 300 pieces of silver. Now the clothes, there, there's, there is some symbolism, some cultural uh, symbolism here. The clothes would have been the best and the finest linen clothes in the world, and they were actually, they would, they would have served as symbols of reconciliation. And there's something in that that we should find incredible awe and beauty in. Because we're told that when we're reconciled to God, we're clothed in something that is not ours as well. We come to Christ with filthy rags, clothed in sin. And He takes that from us, and He gives us His own perfect righteousness in exchange. That too is a symbol of reconciliation. It's a symbol of our reconciliation to God through faith alone in Christ alone. But it's interesting that Benjamin is given more. And the author wants to make sure that we understand that Benjamin is blessed a little bit more, with more than the other brothers. And this is obviously a significant detail because the author wants to make sure that we see that this happens. I mean, couldn't he have said that Joseph gave all of his brothers changes of clothes and some silver? And that would have been a true statement, wouldn't it? It still would have summarized what Joseph did. So why is it important? What's the significance of him giving more to Benjamin? 
Well, we have to understand this. We have to understand that it's Joseph's right to give whatever he wants to whomever he wants. It's not that Benjamin or any of the other brothers has earned these garments or, or, or the reconciliation that they've got with Joseph now. And so this isn't unfair. You might say it's, it's unfair that one person gets more than the others. No, it's not because none of them deserved anything. It's all a gift. It's entirely of grace. You see that? He's given them something that they haven't earned, that they don't deserve. And He's also shown them mercy by not giving them what they do deserve, which is severe punishment for what they did to Him so long ago. But this is also a picture of the Christian life, friends. Some have more than others. And that is by God's sovereign decree. Because it's all by grace. See, in our day and age, we see that there are often disparities among people in our culture. That is, some people have more and some people have less. And we see people crying out in our culture that that is not fair. That that is unjust. And sometimes there is injustice that has to be confronted. Absolutely. There's sometimes injustice that we have to deal with. But when there's a disparity in opportunities, that's what's wrong. When there's a disparity in results, that's not necessarily unjust. Think of it this way. Living in the, in the Seattle area, we love the Seahawks, right? And when you think of how great of a quarterback we have, like Russell Wilson is one of the best quarterbacks, right? That guy's awesome. He can scramble like so few others can. He's got a good arm. He's, he's got good vision of the field. When we think about how great of a quarterback that he is, who would argue that somebody else should have the right to play quarterback? I mean, we'd agree with that, right? If you can find somebody better than Russell Wilson, he should have the opportunity to play quarterback, right? Of course, everybody has that right, that opportunity. But everybody doesn't have the same result because not everybody has the same degree of talent that Russell Wilson has. And listen, for some of us, it doesn't matter how much training we undergo in throwing a football or or in scrambling, we're never going to be able to do it as well as Russell Wilson does because we just don't have Russell Wilson-ness about us. He, he's he's special. He's he's unique. But that's not unjust. It's not unjust for him to be better. It's just who he is and what he has. What would be unjust would be to say that the second string quarterback and the third string quarterback should be able to play just as much time as he does, even though they're nowhere near as good as he, does, as he is, or that they should make as much money as Russell Wilson does, even though they aren't as good or as talented or play as much as Russell Wilson does. See, God has ordained that some would have more and that some would have less. But for those in Christ, we have been blessed with what we could never, ever earn or deserve from God, and that is forgiveness. Not only reconciliation with God, but fellowship with God as sons and daughters. And that's really only the beginning, isn't it? He provides us with much, much more than that. The fact that Joseph gives more to Benjamin than he does to the other brothers is perfectly just. But that does make what he says to them before they leave very interesting. Look at what he says in verse 24. He specifically instructs them, do not quarrel on the journey. When do you think we're most prone to quarrel? to bicker. As, as God's people, when are we most prone? It's when we take our eyes off of what God has blessed us with. Or, and or, it's when we stop trusting in God to provide. Think about how easy it would have been for the brothers to fall back into their own ways. I mean, we know how easy that is, don't we? Don't we all know how easy it is to fall back into an old habit, an old pattern of behavior? You know, when you first believed in Christ, 
You became a new creation, right? A new creature. Literally, ontologically, you were a new being, a new creation. We were literally different people. But that doesn't eliminate our inclinations towards sinful habits, does it? All the sinful habits that you came into your walk with Christ with, you continued to carry them along the journey. It's something that we all have to deal with. The difference should have been, should be, that before you came to Christ, you didn't wage war against those deeds of the flesh. But after you come to Christ, you are constantly striving to put those deeds of the flesh to death. The sons of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph, are all changed men. I'm I'm certain of that much here. But I'm also certain of the fact that they were still sinners with inclinations towards sin. And it was not only possible that they would be tempted to go back into their old ways, but it was certain that they would be tempted to go back into their old ways, just like we get tempted to go back into old patterns of behavior, old sinful habits. I mean, we can imagine that as they're on their way back to Canaan, we can imagine the bickering and the squabbling and the finger-pointing that could have taken place as, as one says to the other, you know, you're the one who came up with the idea of throwing him in that pit 22 years ago. Or another one could have said, you know, you guys sold him off into slavery. I had the intention of saving him. Or what about this? You came up, you're the one who came up with the idea of lying to, to dad about what happened to Joseph. Or you're the one who broke his heart, so you're the one who gets to tell him the truth about this when we get home. Or maybe even, hey, why does Benjamin get more than I do? Did they have issues that could have caused them to quarrel on the way home? I mean, I'd say they had more than enough issues that could have stirred up a lot of disunity, a lot of disharmony, a lot of angst. They have more than enough. But this is where we have to remember what we learned in the previous passage last week, that God in His good and sovereign providence gives us everything that we need for body and soul. The brothers are going to just have to trust that God is going to deal with Jacob about the truth about Joseph. See, the temptation is to take matters into our own hands and to try to work things out uh, by, by softening the truth or by avoiding the truth instead of just trusting in God as we tell the truth. Over the course of the past week, and I hope you have missed this, I think most of you probably have missed this, but there has been an abundance of quarreling in Christian circles. Vice President Mike Pence was invited to speak at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting, and it sparked so much outrage from certain people. You would think that the whole convention just lost their minds. Most of this played out online. But we have to go back to this. When are we most likely to quarrel? When are we most likely to bicker and to fight? Especially amongst amongst ourselves. It's when we forget, when we take our our minds and and our eyes off of what God has blessed us with, or when we stop trusting Him to providentially bless and supply us in the future. In a culture that is as filled with outrage as ours is, I don't know if there's ever been a time when a culture was as filled with outrage as what we're seeing in America right now. This is when we must remember what causes bickering and fighting. And James, if you'll turn to James with me, James chapter 4, he gives us a very clear explanation for what causes bickering and fighting and squabbling and quarreling. He, gives, he goes right to the root of it. Listen to what he says in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What causes your fighting? Why, are you guys, why would you guys ever even be remotely inclined toward bickering? Listen to what he says. He says, Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, quarreling is rooted in a failure to recognize and live in light of God's good and sovereign providence unto His own. This text here in James serves as kind of a a diagnosis and a commentary on Joseph's instruction to his brothers to not quarrel along the journey. See, quarreling, bickering, fighting, it doesn't start in the mind. James tells us it starts in the heart. James informs our thinking, telling us that when we fight, it's because we have desires within us that are impure, that are unholy, and that do not glorify God, that are not centered on God at all, but instead are centered on self. Selfishness. Selfish desires. Ego. These are the things that cause quarreling, according to James. Ultimately, how many fights could be avoided if we were just a little less selfish? How many fights are caused by covetousness? How many quarrels are rooted in envy? I think it's very interesting that James says you are envious and cannot obtain. Not just that you don't obtain, but that you cannot. There are a couple questions that that we should ask there. First of all, obtain what? Maybe satisfaction? or happiness, or peace, or the contentedness that you imagine that you would have if only everything worked out the way you wanted it to work out. James says, you ask and do not receive. Why? He says, because you ask with the wrong motives. So some people don't get because they don't ask. And some people don't, uh, don't get because even though they ask, they're asking with the wrong motivation. And what is that motivation? James says, your pleasures. Selfishness. That's what it comes down to. Selfishness. You know, it's kind of funny when you read this. Because I would imagine that every single prosperity teacher out there uh, would have this passage in their Bibles that specifically says some people don't ask and they don't get, but some people ask and they don't get. The prosperity gospel teaches that we can essentially get whatever we want. All we need to do is speak our realities into existence through positive affirmations or whatever. And thus, if I want something, all I need to do is name it and claim it in faith, right? I need to believe it and receive it. And I can have an $84 million airplane if I have big enough faith. Come on. James makes it clear here that God will not give us everything that we want because He will not feed our inclination to covet or to envy. He will not feed our inclination to find more satisfaction, more contentedness, more joy in the things of this world than we find in Him. He loves us too much to do that, just like a parent would love their children too much to give them nothing but chocolate pudding instead of vegetables and, and fruit and things like that. When we see that there are disparities in the world around us, and even in the church, the answer isn't to fight about it. See, the, the, the gospel of Karl Marx would have us believe that we need to fight for equal results on every single level. And it tempts us to doubt or deny God's providential care. It tempts us to hate God because we don't have as much as somebody else might have. And so it establishes this foundation that only serves the purpose of advancing unforgiveness and bitterness and strife and covetousness and envy. And this is exactly why we see so much outrage, so much tension in the culture around us. Think about it. Our culture is so focused on feeding the God, the idol of self-esteem. Well, everybody's got their own God then. And what happens when somebody doesn't have what other people have? 
It, it goes back to self-esteem. And so then you've got conflict because all you've got is selfishness and covetousness and envy. The biblical answer, contrary to the gospel of Karl Marx, the biblical answer is to find contentment in what God has in His sovereign goodness unto His own, ordained as our lot in this life, knowing that He has and He will continue to providentially supply us with everything that we need for body and soul. So James goes on to talk about how this is so worldly. And you make yourself a friend of the world when you're selfish. This is basically what he says in the next few verses. But skip down to verses 6-10 to where he writes this. He says, But He, God, gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And, here's the promise, He will exalt you. This is a very important passage for us given the amount of tension in our culture today. The first instruction that he gives us in dealing with the root of of quarreling, this is the most important, the first one is, the, the order here is very important. How do we avoid quarrels? How do we avoid covetousness and envying? It starts with, look at verse 7, submitting to God. Submitting to God. We can imagine that that Joseph really easily could have added this as a postscript to his brothers. Don't quarrel along the journey. Submit yourselves to God. That's the answer. That's the first step in, in the cure for quarreling. It's the way to avoid selfishness. It's the way to avoid senseless bickering. This is also why Joseph never ranted against his brothers with Pharaoh or apparently with anybody else. That's why he was able to forgive. It's because he submitted himself first and foremost to God. And we have to do the same. We have to make sure we're doing the same, especially when there's so much outrage in our culture. The second thing he tells us to do is to resist the devil. How does that fit into this? Because the devil wants to feed a person's ego. The devil does want you to covet. The devil does want you to envy. He loves bickering, especially within the church. He does want you to feel discontent with what God has given us. But here's the thing. What happens if you try to resist the devil before you submit yourself to God? You'll be trying to resist the devil in your own strength and it will completely fail. And it will fail miserably. Submit first to God and then resist the devil. The order is very important here. Were the brothers vulnerable to an attack by the devil on the way home? Would the devil have loved to stir up disunity with them? Would the devil have loved to make them discontent with something now that they're changed especially? Absolutely. I mean, these are guys whose whose lives, whose hearts have been changed but they're still vulnerable. Maybe that's when they're most vulnerable. So first, submit to God. Second, resist the devil and he'll flee. Third, James instructs us, draw near to God. How do you do that? How do you draw near to God? There are actually a lot of ways. You, you set your thoughts on, on Him. You, you set your will on pleasing Him in all of your ways. You read His Word. You study His Word. You apply His Word to your life. You pray. And without a doubt, you intentionally deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. Which is the opposite of selfishness. And when you do this, you won't be lashing out at others. 
We won't feel covetous toward others for, for failing to do something that we want them to do or for having something that we ourselves wish we had. We'll find contentedness instead in God's good and sovereign providence. And again, if you do this out of order, if you do this without submitting to God or without resisting the devil, you'll be doing this in your own strength. And you can't do that. The order here is important. Finally, one other instruction that James gives us to repent. To repent. To cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Are are we double-minded? Absolutely. Every single day we're double-minded. That's the struggle of the Christian journey is that we're to be in the world but not of the world. And so this is what happens. We start taking our eyes off of what God has given us and we start coveting. But we're to repent. We're to to turn away from sin. Not feed it by coveting and envying and insisting that, that we get what we want and that everything be done our way, but to turn from it, to repent of it, and to keep ourselves humble before the Lord. Because He's the one who will exalt us. I'm certain that this would have been exactly what Joseph meant when he instructed the brothers, and why he said it, when he instructed the brothers not to quarrel on the journey back to Canaan. The Lord had blessed them with so much through Pharaoh and through Joseph. He had lavished His grace upon them by granting them forgiveness and reconciliation and provisions for the journey that lay ahead of them. He had given them abundant provisions. However amazing and beautiful it may have been, however, that Joseph found such favor in the sight of Pharaoh. It pales in comparison to the blessings and to the favor and to the grace that has been granted to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 says this. It says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our, of our trespasses, according to what? The riches. The riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. And I know that I've been bringing that up so many times in, in so many sermons, but I absolutely love that picture of God lavishing His grace on us. He doesn't just give us barely enough to get by. He lavishes His grace on His children. In His generous favor, even even this Pharaoh foreshadowed the blessings that we have in Christ. Pharaoh promised the the best of the land and and the the fat of the land to, to the brothers, but Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Pharaoh gave the brothers everything that they would need for the journey to and from Canaan. And Paul writes in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Pharaoh was abundantly gracious unto the brothers, and it's a foreshadowing of the, the graciousness that God displays unto His children but it wasn't, Pharaoh wasn't generous. He wasn't gracious unto them because of who they were or what they had done. No, actually, it was despite who they were and what they had done. And the same is true of us in Christ. God blesses us. God grants us favor and grace because through faith alone, and not by any works that we do, but through faith alone, we are brought into union with His only beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're saved for His sake. For the sake of bringing Him glory. And for that to happen, we need grace. Grace is our greatest need, and God has met that need abundantly. God doesn't just provide the bare minimum for us. His providence for His children is abundant. So in light of that, may we set our hearts and desires on Him that we may have contentedness in this life with what He has given us. May we find our greatest joy, our our fullest satisfaction 
our greatest confidence, and our ultimate contentment in His sovereign and good providence unto us through Christ. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank You for being the good and gracious God that You are. And we know, Lord, that we don't deserve anything that You have blessed us with. We could never have earned Your grace. We could never have earned even a drop of blessing from You. It's all by grace. And so we thank You for the reminder that You have granted us more than enough in Your sovereign and good providence for the journey that we have endured thus far and for the journey that lays ahead. And so we pray, Lord, that Your work in us would become evident and more evident as we set our minds on the things that You have blessed us with. We remember that every breath is by grace. That every, every day we have is a gift. And that You are the one who gives every good gift. All good gifts come from You. And so we thank You for them. We thank You for our lives and we pray that You would use our lives greatly to show the glory of Christ. We pray that our lives would glorify Him as we find contentment in what You have given and we don't feel the need to engage in quarreling and bickering over selfish desires. Teach us, Lord, to trust more fully in You and in Your providence that Christ may be magnified and glorified in our lives. In His name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.